0: Hi, this is Masumi Rostad, and I'm your host of Inner Voice, the podcast that goes behind the scenes in the life of a string quartet. I'm the viola player of the Pacifica String Quartet. I had a chance to sit down with Michael Adams, who is the director of the Music in the Vineyards Festival and violist extraordinaire of the Minnesota Orchestra. This is how our conversation went. Thanks for listening. Michael, can you tell us where we are? Besides Starbucks. We're sitting in at a Starbucks
1: in Napa, California.
0: This is wine country, and can you tell
1: us why we're here? Well, we're in the very last week of Music in the Vineyards Festival, uh, which runs the first three weeks of August and we're down to our last two concerts. And we,
0: we have a, a long standing relationship here with you. We've the, with the Quartet. We've been coming here since
1: two thousand and two I believe was the first year. Two thousand and two wow that's that's a long time, something like that might be two thousand four I think it's it was going on seven years now anyway,
0: so um, yeah, I have the my, my memories is like Swiss cheese, so you do a really
1: amazing thing. I, do you mind talking a little bit about what you do here? Sure. Um, well my wife Daria and I started the festival seventeen years ago we were we're orchestra musicians that don't get invited to a lot of festivals, and we got to thinking that not only. Could we do a pretty good job of it if we had the chance? But Napa Valley didn't have something like this going on at the time. So in our naivete, we thought, hey, let's put on some concerts. So we had no idea it would grow into what it has today. But um, we tried to invite musicians to come and sort of regenerate here. We try to create conditions where it's sort of a spa for musicians to come and and reconnect and uh, be well-treated, well-fed, well-housed in a beautiful place, and hopefully they play beautifully. And that's that's all happened, which is really
0: actually amazing. What made you do this? Why Napa Valley? Why? I mean, that's such a huge task to take on starting a festival. R- was it really naivete, like you said?
1: Well, partly, um, Dari and I had thought about starting a festival, and we even floated the idea at in another place, like this place in Arkansas. Actually, that's this beautiful little mountain town in the Ozarks. Fortunately, that didn't fly. Mike. Yeah, thank you for that. <laughs> my parents lived uh, nearby here in Napa Valley, and I have an aunt and uncle that have lived here for 30 years. So I've been coming out here. We love the area, and there was something about the arts and wine. We saw a lot of things happening with great food here and great wine and even great art, and we didn't see much in the way of summertime music. So that's what kind of inspired us to try it here. What were the biggest Um, hurdles that
0: you had when you started this festival? Like, you have to do things like create a budget, um, finding venues. I mean, how did you go about all of this?
1: Well, we were very lucky. Our founding executive director happened to be my mother, who was in arts administration professionally, and she kind of worked without a salary for three or four years, which gave us an artificially low uh, expenses and overhead. So, without that, I'm not sure we could have done this, uh, because... Living in Minnesota during the year, it would be impossible for Daria and I had to do this without some ears and eyes on the ground here. But she was amazing at starting the festival and getting it on firm footing. And it was year two before we put together a board of directors of sympathetic souls that were willing to support us. And the hardest single thing, honestly, was finding venues the first year or two. We didn't know that the county has obstacles for issuing permits for public events. And we thought we'd eventually find, like, one home, one, one winery that would be just the perfect place. And we'd shop around for a few years till we found that. And come to find out, wineries have these precious few use permits. And for a nonprofit, uh, it's difficult for us to go and, and, and pay them f- for that. So we have to find sympathetic wineries who are willing to support us. And as a result, every concert's in a different venue.
0: Napa Valley is, is really kind of a remarkable place. I think the first time I set my eyes uh, on this place, it was just love at first sight because it's, it's this gorgeous valley lined with vineyard after vineyard after vineyard, and they're so beautifully manicured, and yet there's this wonderful natural sense about the place too. And to be able to have access into the wine caves, it's, it's a great experience. It's great to be able to just get in there and, and smell the, the wine seeping out of the barrels
1: into the air <laughs> as you're playing concerts. Can you tell us a little bit about the concert experience here? A couple things. Um, it's interesting that every concert's in a unique venue because it creates its own unique ambience. So a lot of audience members actually like that. They seek out uh, all these different experiences and different wineries that they ordinarily don't get access to because some of them aren't open to the public. There's that aspect. There's the other aspect that I always do program notes from the stage and try to uh, informalize the concert experience uh, as much as possible so that there's not this barrier, you know, everybody talks about breaking down that barrier that's at the footlights, but um, somehow, and I think this comes from my background in radio, actually, when I, I became more comfortable talking about music than actually playing it, uh, that that actually became one of our trademarks. Uh, I didn't realize it early on, but that's something that audience members have encouraged me to do more of, so it's always been something I, I do is talk about the music from the stage.
0: It's great that you do that. What do you focus on when you're doing that? What, what do you think you're trying to convey to the audience about the, the piece that's coming up or about the musicians or whatever?
1: Well, there's always some fascinating backstory. I mean, when you think about why he a composer would dedicate three months, six months of his life to composing just this particular set of notes, it had to be just this way. That's remarkable. It's like, you know, watching a person build a building all by themselves, brick by brick, and then you have to stop and wonder why and how and and, and who there's usually a who is there a woman involved is there there's usually some salacious gossip involved in just about every composer's lives so that's always interesting is to find the backstory to, to personalize and humanize these composers
0: one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to do with this podcast is to go around and and talk to people that are involved in many different aspects of of our classical music world you have a very unique relationship with the audience here and you've done a great thing with building audiences and you also, of course, being a, a viol player in the Minnesota Orchestra, that's a whole other experience. What are your thoughts on the condition of the classical music world, our relationship with the audience? This is such a loaded question, isn't it? There are just so many, yeah, so, so just, you want to just spew forth?
1: Well, everybody obsesses over this right now. And any arm of the classical music business, whether it's from the business end or the artistic side, how do you connect with an audience? How do you keep yourself relevant? Our, our audience is shrinking. You know, we've lost a generation in the public schools and music education. Because of that, we haven't nurtured a whole generation of audiences. So how to win back some people is is a huge question. Our audiences here are wonderfully loyal. I don't pretend to have any answers about how to sort of reinvent the wheel and get us back on the track that music was on you know, 20, 30 years ago. It may be just a different reality that we have to get used to, which may mean a smaller audience. It's a uh, easy here because we have a very loyal audience that we've nurtured over 17 years now and it's amazing to me how many people come to every single concert, the same people.
0: That's a 100% success rate then because 17 years ago you had zero audience, right? <laughs> so over 17 years you've you built an audience which is audience building right there, isn't it?
1: I never thought of it that way, but yeah, we didn't know at the first concert how many chairs to set up. I think we might have had 50, 60 people show up, but we really have spent zero on advertising over the years. So I don't know how we've done that, but it's the word has gotten around.
0: Are you trying to educate your audience at all, or are you trying to... Um, wh- how do you think of that?
1: Well, education is three-quarters entertainment. I mean, if you can entertain them and, and make them enjoy it, they don't realize they're learning something. I try to demystify music and the components of music as, as much as possible. Even the word allegro, we just take for granted that people know what that means. Oftentimes, we erect these barriers in classical music that make it seem like you have to have a a master's degree and a tuxedo in the closet at home before you are worthy of the experience and enjoying it. And if I can do anything to make it just seem like ordinary music, you know, it's not much different than a country and western song when you think about it. There's always some great story behind every piece that was written. The composers were very human. They had unrequited love and, and tragic tragedy in their lives. and it, just like everybody else, and if you see it, x-ray the music and see it in terms of that, and kind of explain to people how it came to be, sometimes that's all it takes to hook them in.
0: There you have it. This is um, country-western music out <laughs> in Hava Valley wine caves.
1: <laughs> yeah. Country, well, let's just call it western. We, we, we make an effort to try to invite musicians from all three disciplines. Uh, orchestra musicians, professional chamber musicians, and soloists and especially people who have teaching backgrounds. And it's amazing when you get those people in the same room how different approaches can be and how how much they are good for each other. For example, orchestra musicians over the years get trained to just think in terms of, do you want it louder, softer, shorter, longer, uh, faster, slower. We work in a very limited, very practical vocabulary, whereas quartet musicians, they have the luxury of, of working things out with more time and uh, a longer process. Whereas orchestra musicians... Wait, wait, wait.
0: Hold on. That's a luxury? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. We see it as a luxury. There's It's a funny thing. The, the ground rules of orchestra rehearsals are such so that a rehearsal will start on the dot at 10 o'clock and, and on the dot at 1230. And we noticed an interesting thing about the, the working habits of quartet musicians versus orchestra musicians. If we have a 10 o'clock rehearsal, the orchestra musicians are there at least a quarter till, 20 till, warming up and everything. Quartet musicians typically will come in around, you know, three or four minutes beforehand, and then or after, or even after. I was being kind, and then, you know, they'll sit and chat for a bit, and we get going about ten after. And as orchestra musicians, you have to be there at least ten or fifteen minutes ahead of time, and it's ingrained in us now.
0: That's really funny. Our students, I know, in Champaign have uh, a term, uh, Pacifica time. So what times your lesson start? Well, 10 o'clock. Is that 10 o'clock uh, Pacifica time? <laughs> Which is maybe like 5, 10 minutes later. It, it is such a different way of functioning, isn't it, when you have an orchestra setting and when you have a chamber music setting. It, it's just different rules of play.
1: Well, Gary and I, as orchestra musicians, see this as the total uh, antidote for... Everything frustrates us about being in orchestra music. musicians have much higher job satisfaction indexes when when they're polled by sociologists. Orchestra musicians have very low job satisfaction indexes. Down there with prison guards. And that's because in an orchestra you lose total control of what you do. Now I don't want to really bash orchestra playing, but let's face it. When you, when you get into orchestra, it's 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 kind of this Faustian deal with the devil in a way. You know, we're at the top of the food chain, maybe financially uh, with the job security and our working conditions. But you're also told what to play, when to play, where to sit, what to wear, when to start, when to stop, how to do it, how not to do it, and then you don't have any control over who you're sitting next to and it may be somebody that's got 30 years in and is just clocking time until that retirement's coming around the corner and they haven't practiced in years. That is frustrating.
0: Before we go into a total unadulterated rant, is that how you feel, or is that is that um, just sort of an accumulated series of, of little complaints?
1: That's pretty much reality for life in an orchestra. Now, there's many wonderful things about it. I mean, frankly, you know, 60% of what we do, we crank out a lot of product, for which there's a lot of demand for just, you know, nominal daily product. And the remaining 40% can be just bliss when we get a great conductor, a great program to play, all the planets align, it it can be just wonderful, the repertoire is fantastic. But on the other hand, it's not a democracy, and you don't get much voice, much of a voice in in how things are done. To come to a chamber music festival and get involved in a more democratic process of music making is incredibly satisfying after having to sit in an orchestra for 11 months of the year. That's really funny, because
0: you, you also have worked it out, then you've got a, a kind of like a, a a tripartite role in that you are playing in the orchestra, and then you are running a festival, and you're playing in it too. <laughs> so it's, it's like you get, you get to see all sides of it, right?
1: We do, and Dari and I make a joke, well, years ago we thought we're doing a really good job with our festival and bringing the level of it up if we... Someday become the worst players at our own festival. And we're almost there! No, 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 not
0: at all. I think what's really great about coming out here and playing with with everybody is that everyone is enthused to be playing together. The concerts here are great. This is a total success. So, congratulations.
1: You, well, thank you. And, and one of our principles is to avoid being a Brown and Serve festival, which is... A what? <laughs> Brown and Serve music making, which is what a lot of festivals do when... I mean, literally, they'll have these, you know, all-star musicians kind of parachute into town one day and they have a rehearsal or two on a program that they all know but they kind of slap together and they go out on stage and they do, you know, an incredible job. It's a incredible reading. But it's brown and serve sort of music making. And we try to make people aware that we and we want this to be a relaxed yet serious working environment where, where professionals come to connect. So we try to schedule plenty of rehearsal time. We insist people are here for a complete week in residence. And I hope you, the Quartet, appreciate this too, because in addition to performing as quartet, we like to have you guys mix and match with everybody else, and I hope that's an enriching experience for the quartet as well. Because you probably don't get to do that much during the year, do you?
0: No, th- this is actually great for us because um, usually it's when you look up and, and you're you're playing uh, you're, the repertoire. There's it's the same three faces, you know. Um, so it, it's great to to hear different sounds coming out from different sides and. Um, uh, even even the other day when we played the Bruckner quintet it was it was interesting to have Brandon on my left side um versus being on my right side which just a little change like that it's 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 already you know a huge difference so little it's it's all these things that 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 make it um that make your brain rewire you know um just just before we finish up I just wanted to ask if you have anything else that you wanted to add um either about about the festival or what you think um the way that you think things are headed in the next maybe 10 years down the road and, and beyond in, in, in the classical music world. I know this is such a, again, a heady loaded question, but you know I'm very curious about this and, and about your thoughts.
1: Well, uh, I'm afraid that the business end of the bu- of, of the classical music industry is going to dictate the terms under which we are all working now how orchestras function I think is going to change. The standard of living of some orchestras is going to probably shrink, um, which will ultimately be reflected in a change at the box office in ticket prices, and that will trickle down to every level of the business, even chamber music concerts, because um, often the the high watermark for, for pricing is set by the big stars, the Yo-Yo Ma's, and frankly, orchestras aren't hiring as many Yo-Yo Ma's and uh, it's like Perlman and Zuckermans anymore because we can't afford them. So uh, that's that's going to change. I think we're going to see a little bit more, a little less ambitious, more modest uh, approach to presentations, less risky, uh, more conservative, and hopefully more creative. But uh, where it's headed, that's about as far as I can go. Yeah,
0: and it's also interesting that you said that uh, about the Yo-Yo and the and the Itzhak Perlmans because... There aren't so many of them these days, are there? I mean, not not of the same um, universal stature that 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 you can think of back in uh, as as recently maybe as the mid '90s. But but it's 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 changed, hasn't it?
1: I think that's more perception than reality. When you look at Europe, over there, there's enough of a classical music audience to support five or six big name concert cellists, for example. In this country, there's only one. Now that that can't be. Now there's, of course, on the B level, you know, maybe a half a dozen that are making a pretty decent living over here. But that's just not right. Now, that, that's partly the media's fault for, for glorifying and almost deifying the chosen few, the, you know, it used to be the Pavarotti's and the Perlmans and the, the like. And it's just sad that this country can't support more than three or four top-name violinists and, you know, one or two cellists.
0: Um so there you have it. <laughs> Thanks a lot Michael. Thanks for, for taking the time to sit down and talk with me and I'm looking forward to playing some Svenson with you. The Svenson octet later today. And
1: um Whose idea was that to program?
0: Well, we we played it earlier in Ireland. I do you like the piece?
1: It's one of those pieces that's worth doing once every dozen years or so like the Bruckner string quintet. Yeah, I've enjoyed doing it. It's it's not it's not a masterpiece.
0: It's not a masterpiece, but, but it, is, it is interesting. And um, the Bruckner, actually, I really, I really appreciated the, the viola quintet. That's a, that, that was, quite, I, I thought, a, a very nice piece. So anyway, I'm looking forward to, to playing the spenson with you later today and to having some more beautiful wine. Thanks a lot. You're welcome. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you have any comments, I would love to hear them. So drop me an email at innervoicepodcast at yahoo.com. That's all one word inner voice podcast at yahoo.com goodbye